0: By dad. Fashion. By dad. Fashion. By dad. Bad. I'm bad and I'm fashion by dad. Call me Vlad. I'm real bad. Yes, welcome to Fashion by Dad, the land of the surreal, where Castella meets curls, Foats meets metal, and Oxymoron meets juxtaposition. And the blazer of glory in this episode is the Hive's Vest. The story of an 11-year-old afloat at sea. Not the recent story of the girl in pink, although well, this girl was also in pink, or the story of Banksy. There's been lots of pink floaty girls at sea, it seems, but uh, we're specifically interested in the history of the Hive's Vest. One of the most Fascinating thing, one of those typically fascinating things you hear here on Fashion by Dad. But if you're very nice, boys and girls, we might make time for another story time story uh, later in the show if I don't run out of time. That is here on Fashion by Dad, each week a theme, and this week's theme water.
1: we are now in this place and time where the rivers run dry and the sun beats down. You can't grow a crop cause the waters are gone. I'm staring at a desert where there once was a farm. Generations hard work turned into dust. Shame you're sitting idle, but it's too dry to rust. People doing nothing while the crippled by fears, because you can't grow a crop and it's watered by tears. To will be very clear if there was ever a doubt This country been buggered by a 70 drought There ain't no sign that things are getting better Everybody's brain that it's gonna get wetter Give the water back Let the river flow Give the water back Let the river flow That's it happens when you hold back the flood You get a river of tears and a river of blood The only thing that's flowing from this river to the ocean Is a trickle of mud and a lot of sad emotion Give the water back Let the river flow Give the water back Taking all the water from the people that are needy Filling up the dams of the wealthy and the greedy What you gonna eat when the food's gone rotten The only thing left is a mouthful of cotton Give the water back
2: can't just kill rivers. I mean, you can't have the major river in Australia not reaching the end and then start to take more water out of it and wonder why we're in trouble. I've done 10 years of university, three and a half decades in the water industry, three years paddling down rivers and countless interviews. I just can't get people to understand. I can't even get people to take significant notice. We'll change the way the rivers run. And we did. Mother Nature took a few years before she turned around and kicked us in the guts and said, I don't like what you've done to me. It's a story about my trips along Australia's rivers. But more importantly, it's a story about an engineer who learns that what he thought he knew is nearly all wrong the answers are there we could be doing the right thing and while we procrastinate the land and the rivers are dying it's a disaster down here but it's a quiet disaster it's not like the melbourne fires
1: the families that are falling apart the businesses that are going to the wall Uh, and the human impact in terms of people taking their own lives is now abundantly evident. We need large quantities of water, but do you want the food or don't you? You give us a litre
0: of water, we can grow food with it. You give the city a litre of water and it becomes sewerage.
2: The states are going to have to come together on this issue because if they don't, then the whole system is going to um, totally collapse. At the moment, it's just partially collapsed is really really serious and yet people don't seem to get it i don't know what the future is unless we grab hold of the issue and fix the problem
0: The River, Dennis Natras, the soundtrack for a uh, film version of Crimea River, uh, film made by Water Crusader, kayaker, Kayak for Earth, Steve Posselt, speaking about the Murray Darling before that, and before that, Doug Kerr with Give the Water Back, here on Fashion by Dad, The water episode, we're working our way through the elements. We've done fire, we've done air. Tonight we're looking at water. There's another little rave from Steve on a different river. Uh, Last time we heard him, he was talking about the Darling and Murray in drought. This time he's talking about a river in flood. He's trying to paddle upstream. The mouths of the Mississippi were smaller here, just licking their foaming lips, but they were there all right and not at all friendly. A big log jam jutted out into the river. White water rushed past. Not wanting to think about it, I paddled hard towards the edge of the log. Crashing into the white water, I was thrust 20 metres into the river in one second. Two seconds it was 30 metres as the rudder responded. Paddling desperately, I had held my ground, but only just... I edged back towards the log jam, just holding on. About three metres out from the logs was a standing wave that gave me enough relief from the current to inch forwards. Go, go, go! With every ounce of strength I had, the kayak inched forward. The top of a small tree was 30 metres ahead and just inside the line of logs. Got to make that, got to make that, got to make that! The words echoed around my head. The carbon-wing blade flexed in the water as I thrust like a man possessed, past the point of no return. I was above the log jam. a broken blade, maybe even a missed stroke, and that could be my last. The river was rough, it was ugly, and I was bouncing like a cork. This was committed. No way back. Steve Posselt from Tough Is Not Enough. Your story time story here on Fashion by Dad's Water episode. lived 900 years. Cher, with it ain't necessarily so, and when we hear the dulcet sounds of Cher taking her gospel whenever it's possible, with a little grain of salt, it's time for a when I was a boy. Now, here on Fashion by Dad, I'm challenging, channeling, not challenging, I'm channeling the metadad, the ancient just going to look back through the streets of Fitzroy when I was a boy. Now, of course, we've got on our television screens uh, the Jack Irish story set in a sort of reminiscent, a modern reminiscent Fitzroy, old people in bars. I used to drink in a Fitzroy pub. Actually, it was a Carlton pub, but it's right next door, about as close as... Valley in some parts of Spring Hill. You walk around the corner from Fitzroy, you're in Carlton. Anyway, there was an old pub there, classic, of the kind seen in Jack Irish. The old men glued it to stools. The Purple Cow's Corner was one corner of that pub, and um, this was a singing pub. Every night, the baton, there was no actual baton, but the role of leading the song was passed from person to person, and because it was right next to the commission flats there, people from all over the world had come to live in uh, Fitzroy, and so we would hear, you know, heartfelt folk songs, love songs, songs about, you know, the loss of life, love, and nationhood, from one corner of the world or the other, and often the song would be well enough known that people would be able to join in the chorus. As a middle class white fella, I was always a little bit embarrassed that I didn't have a uh, theme song to go back to. <laughs> I mean, you can build out Walsing Matilda or something, as Bob, Bob Hawke did at Woodford one year, but in the streets of Fitzroy, it was considered fairly uh, poor taste. Uh, which I remember one time in a pub in Redfern in Sydney, uh, launching into banjo Paterson, man from Snowy River or something, And was nearly chucked out of the pub because it was a Henry Lawson pub. They thought Banjo Patterson was, you know, a toff. White-class rural establishment poet. They were firmly Henry Lawson. And um, I really, really had to talk my way out of that one, not to get pushed out. That was was the Redfern push. They didn't like people from Paddington either. So, these inner-city pubs, great backgrounds. But... The story I want to tell tonight is before the commission flats were put up, the commission flats were put up in the 60s to clear out the slums, the slums of Fitzroy, the breeding ground of Squizzy Taylor and those great 20s Melbourne criminals. So the back streets of Fitzroy then were teeming with life. We look at them now, they're sort of fairly quiet cobblestones and very genteel. It's not just the gentrification that has taken place recently with the arrival of a well-heeled uh, university and alt in the cafe drinking sector. It's really a deliberate campaign by those governments in the 60s to... I mean, they were well-motivated. They wanted to ensure health and safety... For the lower classes. But in that teeming, lively mess of old Fitzroy, Collingwood, and Carlton, those inner city, bluestone suburbs of Melbourne, there was no running water. It was outside Dunnies with uh, a can, a night can, and the night man came along and took the night can took your old night can full of poo and weave from the week twice a week in some parts of town and uh, put it on the back of his night truck. The night man's truck was a stinking mess that drove up those cobbled back lanes. And because there was no running water, we used to go and get a billy of beer for Grandma. So Grandma had a billy of beer, so she got a quart of beer every morning. She used to dip into it during the day. And the point about beer is that it was made with clear water and it had been brewed carefully. And so it was clear. It wasn't poisonous. It wasn't There were no bugs in the beer. So Granny drank beer all day. Mm. And you see a similar thing in um, Germaine Greer's Shakespeare's Wife, an account of the life of females in Elizabethan England, when I really was a boy. And her point is that it was the role of women to make the cider and the ale that was drunk as the alternative to water in the working-class areas of England. Well, we hadn't invented the working class then. We were just the lower classes. And in lots of parts of London, there was no work. The next class up, the working class had jobs in factories, but the old Londoners, the inner-city Londoners, just made a living however they could. Gin was the way to get drunk. Cider and beer were the way to, well, of course, they relieved the pain a little, but they were cleaner than water. So there you have it, a tale about water from when I was a boy. Uh, Now, I was talking about uh, drinking beer instead of water in old Fitzroy. Bones informs me that the person who brought the water to Grandma or wherever, the billy of water each morning, was called a cutter. So if you know why the uh, usually young lad sent out to get the day's beer supply in a billy was called a cutter, let us know here on Fashion by Dad. You can pop it on Insta or Facebook, Fashion by Dad, or at fashionbydad.com. That's where we post the stories here on Fashion by Dad. This week's Blazer of Glory. Every week we... (laughs) make a nod to fashion here on Fashion by Dad on Zed's. You're listening to 4 triple Z, 4 triple zorgau or 102.1 FM. Uh, fashion by Dad has a section called Blazer of Glory where we deal with some fashion crime that was once a good idea. So far we've looked at Henry VIII's diamond-crusted member in, uh, the Mirror and the Light. And we looked at uh, the biscuit jacket from the Montrose Primary School in 1964 to blazes of glory thus far here on fashion by Dad. But tonight we're looking at the high-vis vest. Now, the high-vis vest, the safety vest, is has a long and interesting history. Various people claim various sort of Ownership of it. Uh, The Thames Tugboat Company, that's not its real name, that's my name for it, a group of fellows whose job was carting ships around and saving people in the Thames invented a sort of vest where a whole lot of cork... Corks, of course, were the only enclosures for wine bottles, many other bottles at the time... And uh, so they created a flotation device, which was a whole lot of cork sewn into a vest. So that was the beginning of the flotation vest, or thus claimed by the Thames Tugboat Company, by any other name. I'll post a picture of that on Fashion by Dad, Facebook and Insta page. But the um, flotation vest was just the beginning. Do I have the... um, story in front of me? Yes. The horrific survival tale of an 11-year-old girl who was orphaned at sea. So 11-year-old Terry Jo Duperel spent 84 gruelling hours alone at sea until she was rescued. There's a photo of her. She was just spotted by a ship among the whitecaps on the wave the 11-year-old had been in a uh, pink dress but it had faded in the sun and the salt. She was almost impossible to spot among the white caps of the wave. And um, when they pulled her ashore, she was somewhat dehydrated, sunburnt and otherwise worse for wear. But when they got the full story, it was pretty gruesome. So the story begins when her father, a prominent optometrist, named Dr. Arthur DuPetro, chartered a luxury luxury yacht from Fort Lauderdale in Florida to the Bahamas. He brought his wife and his kids, Brian fourteen, Terry Joe, eleven, that's our girl, and Renee, seven. He also brought his friend, former Marine and World War II veteran, Julie Harvey, as the skipper, along with Harvey's new wife, Mary Dean. By all accounts, the trip was going swimmingly and there was little friction between the two families for the first five days of the journey. You can sort of sense the Gilligan's Island drama building. On the fifth night of the cruise, Terry Joe was awakened by screaming and stamping on the deck above the cabin in which she slept thought all the third drinks kicking in rolled over tried to go back to sleep but talking to reporters later terry joe recalled how she went upstairs to see what it was and she saw my mother and my brother lying on the floor with blood all over she then saw harvey walking towards her harvey slapped her face and told her to go below deck Terry Joe once more went above deck and when the water levels began to rise on her level, she ran into Harvey again and asked him if the boat was sinking, to which he replied yes. He then asked her if she had seen the dinghy that was moored to the yacht break loose. When she told him she had, he jumped in the water towards the loose vessel. Left alone, Terry Joe remembered the single life raft aboard the vessel and embarked on the tiny boat out into the ocean. Without food, water or any covering to protect her from the heat of the sun, Terry Joe spent 84 gruelling hours before she was rescued by the Captain Tell. Unbeknownst to Terry Joe, by the time she woke up on November the 12th, Harvey had already drowned his wife and stabbed the rest of Terry Joe's family to death. He likely killed his wife to collect her twenty thousand dollars double indemnity insurance policy. When Terry Joe witnessed, when Terry Joe's father witnessed him killing her, he must have killed the doctor and then proceeded to kill the rest of her family. I've lost a bit of track of who's who by this point, but we can, you can go back over it following the links on which I will post. So, anyway, the um, murderer was found a couple of days after his daughter was found and um, killed himself when he found out that his daughter was alive. A witness. He wasn't able to maintain the story that he was trying to tell. So there we have the terrible story of Joe Depero. Now, the relevance to Joe Depero's 84 gruelling hours at sea and the hive vest is that because she was almost impossible to spot on a white life raft, in a white dress, among white waves, on a sunlit ocean, it was decided, it was decreed that life rafts would be bright orange and that um, life rafts would be fitted with flotation vests similar to the ones that have been invented by the Thames Tug Company. But those vests would be bright orange. And thus, the Hivey's vest was born. Now, the Hivey's vest is now, you know, a sort of regular fashion crime. If you attend any airport on a Monday morning or a Friday afternoon and the FIFO is flying out of the capital city or into the capital city to spend their 14 or 10 days on the mine or wherever they're fi into or out of the hive is vest is de rigueur the seats heading for one part of the aircraft the suits heading for one part of the aircraft and the hive is vests heading for the other so it's a it's a sort of Class divider in our society, engineers, STEM students and workers in high-vis and uh, politicians, lawyers and bankers in suits, unless, of course, it's election time, in which case the politicians don the high-vis vest to identify with their working fellows. Now, interestingly, we have this hugely visible sign of class, yet we still have not got a class analysis that divides along the same lines. So the theory is lagging behind the practice. More of that in daytime midday shows rather than here in the middle of the night. We're interested here in the fashion crimes. Now, the high-vis vest or high-vis materials have been the subject of some fashion shows, reverse garbage does a regular recycled fashion and upcycled fashion gear at their Wollongabba headquarters. And one year, the entire show was dedicated to fashion in high-vis. So, fashion crime writ large, upcycling safety gear into fashion. Not fashion by dad, fashion by reverse garbage. And uh, as regular listener, perhaps the only listener at this hour of the morning, Bones, has asserted the high-vis is part of the whole insurance fear-based health and safety framing of society. We can't swing on a swing. We can't climb a tree. We can't have a step outside our door. We must have a ramp because... We could trip over our own feet. We're all so afraid of being sued by anything that we daren't do anything. Because we live in a litigious world driven by insurance claims. So, the hive is vest, in Bone's word, is a fashion scam. So, there we are a few different takes on the hive is vest. Uh, you, there's actually a few interesting stories about people being lost at sea, especially uh, young girls in pink at the moment. But we're flexible here on Fashion by Dad. We work our way through the elements, fire one week, air the next. We covered storms, wind, all sorts of things, love songs, wind, wind, blew this perfume everywhere. So this week we're covering water. Anyway, here's a here here's a treat for you. Uh, Let me introduce it with my super steam. What's
2: that?
0: What is it? what Ah. What is it? What the Tesla? What the Tesla? A science challenge every week. What's going on? So last week we sent that challenge to no idea. Here's what no idea did with it.
3: It's back, Max. Now the to... science of Cooking returns. I was was talking to my wife last night. I said, I bet you Gabe's going to spring this on me, the science of cooking. (laughs) (laughs) You were right. I had a story lined up for the science of cooking since the end of our show last week. Yeah. Uh, I came across the science of why some spice hangs around in your mouth and other spice dissipates from your mouth really quickly when you eat it. But I'm going to hold that story till next week, so you know in advance another science of cooking coming at you next week. You're welcome. Uh, But uh last week uh on i think Thursday or Friday we got an email through our inbox which is no idea for triplez at gmail.com if you have any science questions or want to submit music or anything like that uh no idea triplez at gmail.com uh which is also, you can find that on the show page if you, on the 4 Triple Z website, if you forget it. Yes. But we got an email from one of our new shows every, uh, or twice a year. Yeah. We changed the grid a bit at 4 Z. We, uh, we, we uh. spice things up a little, and usually there's a few people who leave and a few people who enter, and one of the new entries is a show called Fashion by Dad, which is airing at 2am to 5am on a Tuesday morning. That's handy. But they asked us a science question. Uh, and they, uh, they sent it through to our email, yes. and I clipped that little bit of audio for you, Max, if you want to give it a play. If you have a look at Fashion by Dad
0: on the socials, you'll see a mason jar, a glass jar with a rubber seal full of what looks like a sort of brown curd. It was going to be yoghurt, but I left the oven on and uh, the yoghurt cooked. Anyway, when I took the warm yoghurt out of the oven... Suddenly started to boil and bubble. A sealed jar full of warm baked yogurt, and all of a sudden it starts to bubble. It's
3: got no heat applied, it's cooling down. Why is the curd bubbling? Why indeed, Max? Do you have any ideas? No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> thought I'd throw you under the bus just once more. <laughs> so I thought about it. It was It's a tricky question because, you know, you, you associate boiling with rising temperatures or at least holding a high temperature, not with falling temperatures. So I was trying to figure out what could go on here. The process was effectively uh, you put dairy, usually some sort of milk, high-fat milk, in, in the oven with some other stuff. Uh, you cook it for a bit, and it separates just enough that you get yogurt. Um, but like you were saying, yeah, uh, went a bit too hard uh, and um, ended up with uh, with curd and watery substance basically Mm. uh, where you've got um, where you've got yeah, these two separate layers, and this happens. The stuff splits. Dairy splits all the time yeah. when you Sus- handle suspension. it when cooking. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. So that that happens. Most people have had that happen to them at some point when they're when they're trying to cook something that's got dairy in it, and it splits, and it's just the worst thing. And there's no way of reversing it, mm. uh, and it's just a crap time all around. You usually end up ordering Dominoes for the for the evening. Oh, does it? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But anyway, he, he's his split because he left it in the oven for too yeah. long. Uh, and then when he took it out of the oven in this mason jar, um, it started to bubble and boil a little. Hmm. And he was trying to figure out why it wasn't doing that already because it should be in falling temperature, which you'd associate with not boiling, yes. or at least boiling less than it was when it was in the oven. Now, my best explanation here has to do with the temperature and the separation that went on. My guess is the watery part of the dairy and the claggy part of the dairy uh, separated. And because that that claggy part is full of fat, it rose to the top, and you can see that in the video, it's at the top. And when it was at the top, it got subject to that heat and dryness that the oven was pumping down onto it, or at least just the heat if it was a sealed mason jar. And with that, it sort of coagulated a bit at the top, fused together and formed a flat layer that sealed in the top of the, of the liquid in the jar. And so even though the, the, the temperature of the liquid was at the boiling point, apparently the boiling point of milk is 95 degrees, mm. a little less than water, but mm. certainly what the oven would have been set to at least. Yes. Uh, because it was at that temperature, my guess is the mixture was probably boiling a bit, but just was boiling beneath a layer of this curd that was sort of burnt, not mm. burnt, but like browned into a thick... Uh, sort of continuous layer across the top of the jar, and then removing the jar from the oven disturbed it just enough. Maybe it didn't break it all the way through, but disturbed it just enough that the gas could then push up through it and start bubbling a bit more, and, and could be seen to bubble from top down. Um, because you know, boy I mean, it, it, there could have been more going on. Like there could have been there was some pressure differences caused by the. The top layer being sort of sealed in in the oven and like burnt into a seal across the top, you could have ended up with a bit of a pressure difference that was not allowing the liquid beneath to boil as much because yeah. the, uh, the the boiling is effectively when the the pressure of the atmosphere matches the pressure of the liquid, mm. uh, and then the liquid wants to. Escape and become gas um, because it can at that pressure. So, so there could have been that the pressure. There was a bit of a pressure build-up that didn't allow it to bubble that much, um, caused by that that sort of baked-on layer at the top. But, but most likely is it was probably bubbling a little bit underneath, uh, but just wasn't coming through to the top because it wasn't. It was baked over in a seal, and then moving it from the oven disrupted that a little bit, and it boiled up through. But that's just my best guess. I could be wrong. Well if you've done. come across this before and have a better explanation at why this this uh, curd and watery stuff was bubbling after removal from the oven, let me know. I'm I'm ready to be proved wrong. Excellent. There
0: you have it, fashioned by Dad, challenging no idea to explain the boiling curd. Now, I think he was getting close towards the end. wasn't the temperature. It was well below the boiling temperature of milk by the time I took it out of the oven. It was sort of... The oven had been off for an hour or so. Um, I think it's the pressure. So I'm going to do an experiment. So you, wait, let me explain what I mean by I think it's the pressure. You uh, put the jar in the oven. Let's say you've got a jar of water, and this is going to be my experiment. You put a jar of water in a mason jar and you get it up to boiling point so that it drives off. Uh, a lot of steam. More, the air escapes out of the seal of the mason jar because it can push the lid up and get around the rubber seal. As the oven cools, the lid snaps shut. Uh, no air can get in, so you've got very low pressure inside the jar, but it's at a temperature where the pressure is even. When you take it out and it starts to cool down, the air uh pressure drops further and so the um, air or steam in in the water is at higher pressure than the air in the um, gaseous part of the bottle and so the water boils to even up the pressure. I think he was getting pretty close, very close, thanks no idea. Now, this week's challenge, very simple to explain uh, say, very simple to ask, very hard to explain. I have a bar of iron. I am a spaceman. I'm an astronaut. I'm in space. In my little spaceship, I hold my bar of iron in a gas flame. I heat up the bar of iron until it glows cherry red. I've got my little blacksmith uh, set up in my spaceship. Then I get my red hot bar of metal and I sort of reasonably quickly place it into a container into my space ejection rubbish chute, press the button, the air seal locks shut and my red hot piece of metal is thrown into space where it cools down, stops being red hot and turns into black cold steel. How is the heat radiated? Normally, we um, pass, you know, if we've got a bar of metal, it heats up the air around it. The heat is transferred by its contact with other substances. How does the heat go out of the red-hot bar of steel in the cold, cold depths of space? This week's challenge from No Idea to Fashion by Dad... Or oh, from Fashion by Dad to no idea. Sorry, I got that the wrong way around. All right. Now, almost time for a story time story here on Fashion by Dad. So get ready to get tacked in by your pa, by Vlad, by the ancient. And the story time story this morning comes from Sam Coleridge, the opium smoker. Took two grains of laudanum to help with a tad of dysentery wrote some of his best poetry and got addicted. Fascinating uh, study recently about the relationship between opium and addiction and creativity. Quite a number of artists of our time and previous times have done some of their best work whilst off their face on morphine, heroin, some form of opium. The trick is they only last about four years. They have this creative peak for about four years and then somehow fuse the wires. Anyway, Coleridge wrote The Ancient Mariner. Some debate about whether this was under the influence or before the influence. One of the longest uh, poems around. Well, not one of the longest poems around, but one of the longest poems of the 19th century poets that... Got taught to many school kids when I was a boy. Um, Starts out at a wedding where the ancient mariner tells the story. The wedding guest sat on a stone. He cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. Or mariner. So Coleridge taking a little bit of poetic licence there, rhyming mariner with but here. Anyway... The uh, mariner tells the story about uh, this tale. Mariner tells the tale about how they set sail. Wandered off. Got a bit lost in the North Atlantic. The ice was here, the ice was there, the ice was all around. It cracked and growled and wore, roared and howled like noises in a swound. At length did cross an albatross. Through the fog it came as if it had been a Christian soul. We hailed it in God's name. It ate the food it ne'er had eaten, round and round it flew. The ice did split with a thunder fit, the helmsman steered us through. God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus. Who looked thou so with my crossbow, I shot the albatross. So I was meant to uh, pause for a dramatic effect between the... uh, Ice and the albatross steering them through. So they were lost in the ice. The albatross comes along and saves them as if it had been a Christian soul. Don't forget this was a time when the uh, Pope had decreed that Uh, white fellows from Europe could roam around the world and take over any land that didn't, hadn't been saved by Christ. They could save it by Christ by killing all the locals and planting a European flag on it known as the Doctrine of, Doctrine of Discovery. So, the sailors are on the sea. The albatross saves them from the ice. Then blah, 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 goes on for another, you know, 300 stanzas. And then it's God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why looks thou so with my crossbow? I shot the albatross. Not quite clear why he shoots the albatross. I think he might have been a bit peckish. He thought that bird looks nice and plump. Anyway, the result... Of shooting the albatross is so that they end up in the doldrums of the tropics, so from the North Atlantic in the ice. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon, right above the mast did stand, no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, not breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water, everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, O Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. So the mariner is punished for shooting the albatross. In fact, they hang it around his neck. I thought I wouldn't torture with that gruesome uh, detail. And the uh, bird did stink, of course, and he's cursed. And they think about chucking him overseas, uh, uh, overboard, with his albatross necklace uh, to get rid of him. But they're eventually saved. So... He says to the people at the wedding after he's told this long and torrid tale, Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns until my ghastly tale is told. This heart within me burns. I pass like night from land to land. I have strange power of speech. The moment that his face I see, I know the man that must hear me. To him my tale I teach. There you have it here on Fashion by Dad, a story time story. The Ancient Mariner from Samuel Coleridge. I'll post a pic of the boy and a link to his poem. Probably a link to the rave about him uh, drinking too much, or eating, eating too much opium. Here on Fashion by Dad, we're about to say goodbye for our water episode. Thank you for your company. Stay tuned for Fishing in the Mornings.